One of my favorite sayings is we always search for the truth, not tradition. I think we're looking for guys that have a high level of skills when it comes to, you know, the ability to play multiple positions. That's one thing that we value. Player development, I think that's an ongoing process and an ongoing evolution. Every year, you're going to look for newer and better ways to do what you do. That's the big key, I think, for us when it comes to player development is put them in an environment that's going to be very game-like, very challenging, that's going to allow them to adapt and grow and get better. Fellas, 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 welcome back to the Farm System Podcast, your home for baseball development. We're here for you, by you, and with you. I'm your co-host, Joey Cunha. And I'm Bo Callis. This podcast is designed for coaches, players, scouts, really anyone looking to further their development in the game of baseball. Here at the Farm System, we take pride in being lifelong learners, and we are here to be a bridge from where you are to where you're going. We'd like to welcome back our veteran listeners. We're happy to grow with you again. We'd also like to welcome our first-time listeners, the rookies. Don't worry, every vet was once a rookie. On this episode, we sit down with Monty Lee, head coach at Clemson University. Pull up a seat, grab your notepad, here's Coach Lee. Welcome back to the Farm System. We're here with Monty Lee, head coach at Clemson University. Coach, we appreciate you taking some time out of your day to sit down and chat with us here at the Farm System. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be on, be, uh, be with you guys. Uh, looking forward uh, to talking some baseball with you guys. Absolutely. Well, Monty, you know, a big reason we want to have you on is, you know, definitely over the last couple of years, the resurgence of Clemson baseball and everything that you've been able to do at that program. Um, it's just been amazing. And, you know, you guys are definitely in the spotlight right now uh, with what you guys are doing. And so we just wanted to have you come on, you know, talk through a lot of those things and that process of what it takes. You know, it takes a long time to be an overnight success. And so uh, we want to have you on and dive into a lot of that stuff. Cool. Cool. I'm looking forward to talking Clemson baseball and talking a little bit about my journey uh, over the years, my experience here at Clemson and some other places I've been and, um, you know, and just trying to share with the, with the people who will be listening to this podcast, uh, you know, just some of my ideas on player development and coaching uh, young men of today and just try to try to help um, promote our game uh, any way that I can. Coach, kind of before we dive into some of the depth of the conversation, do you mind taking our listeners through your journey to get to this point in your baseball career? Sure. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, I've been fortunate. I've lived in the state of South Carolina uh, my whole life, uh, played high school baseball, uh, grew up in the town of Lugolf, South Carolina, a small town, uh, was very, very fortunate to play for a really good high school baseball coach in a very in a, um, a very successful high school baseball program. So, um, you know, I was very well coached, uh, growing up, um, you know, didn't get, didn't get recruited, uh, uh, heavily at all, uh, really did not get an opportunity, um, uh, when it came to a scholarship opportunity until, uh, the playoffs of my senior year of high school, uh, just, you know, thought I would just try to walk on somewhere and see if I could just get a chance to play and, was blessed to get a scholarship opportunity at the College of Charleston um, during the playoffs of my senior year. Um, visited the College of Charleston, 
committed and signed there, played there for four years, was very fortunate to play at the College of Charleston, was an everyday player for four years, and had a great experience there, got drafted uh, my senior year, a late senior sign, uh, St. Louis Cardinals drafted me, and I played a year of pro ball uh, with the Cardinals, uh, got released at the end of spring training uh, in 2000 and was fortunate enough uh, to sign as a free agent with the Texas Rangers organization, played another year with the Rangers. And, um, you know, after that year, realized that at 23 years old and and, and being an, an outfielder in A-ball that it probably wasn't – I probably wasn't going to play in the big leagues. Uh, but But always knew I wanted to coach. Um, went back to the College of Charleston. I majored in education because uh, I knew I wanted to coach and finished up my degree and um, had actually uh, my, my first opportunity in coaching. I had, I had taken uh, a job at, at a local high school and was going to be uh, the JV baseball coach and was in the process of trying to find a teaching job uh, when I ran into a good friend of mine uh, who I had played in college with named Austin Alexander. He was a pitching coach at a junior college, and uh, he encouraged me to come up there and be the hitting coach at Spartanburg Methodist Junior College. And that was that was really the beginning for me, and that was back in 2000, 2001. Uh, started out at Spartanburg Methodist as a volunteer uh, hitting and, and outfield coach there, um, taught full-time. Uh, while I was there, taught uh, taught elementary school, actually, uh, for two years. Uh, while I was there, uh, drove 33 miles every day uh, from the elementary school uh, to uh, the junior college uh, and worked there for two years and had a blast. We went to Grand Junction uh, my first year there uh, in 2001 with Coach Wallace, uh, who is still there to this day and had a great squad. And, won 51 games the next year, had another great year. And just overall, just I don't know if I could have been more fortunate uh, to start out my career uh, in that fashion, uh, coaching at the junior college level, grassroots baseball, blue-collar baseball, not the greatest facilities, but tough kids with really good makeup that, you know, were wanting to try to get somewhere else. You know, they wanted to get drafted or they wanted to get a D1 scholarship. So, just worked with a special group of kids there um, and then being able to teach uh, along the way and, you know, having to make ends meet and, you know, just trying to figure it out as a young coach like we all do was, I think, a really valuable experience for me. Uh, worked the camp circuit uh, during that time as well just to try to better myself and meet other coaches and network and was fortunate enough to get a chance to work uh, Ray Tanner's camps uh, at South Carolina. Uh, and Coach Tanner contacted me after my second year at Spartanburg Methodist. We had a few players going there and wanted me to be the volunteer coach there. Uh, so Coach Tanner uh, gave me a chance there. Uh, I came on board at South Carolina in the fall of 2002. Uh, worked for Coach Tanner for six years. Uh, he promoted me to recruiting coordinator uh, in 2008. And... Um, and we had a you know a great run there. I coached a lot of really good teams and really good players there. And it doesn't get any better than working for Ray Tanner. I uh, got a chance to work with Jim Tolman. He was the recruiting coordinator there. Jerry Myers, Mark Calvi, uh, Sammy Esposito. You know, worked with some really good coaches and and worked for the best in the business and, and Ray Tanner. 
Um, and then uh, my alma mater, uh, College of Charleston, uh, the job came open. Coach Pulowski at the time uh, took a job at Auburn. And uh, in the summer of 08, I was offered uh, the opportunity to be the head coach at my alma mater, which was just a dream come true uh, for somebody at, at my age. I was 31 at the time and got a chance to come back to the College of Charleston and be the head coach there. And uh, did seven years at the College of Charleston. And uh, and then uh, the Clemson opportunity came about in the summer of 2015. Um, was offered the opportunity to be the the head coach at Clemson, which is you know really a dream job uh, when you get to you know to to coach a program like this. And uh, and I've been here now for uh, three years and going into year four. So uh, and that's kind of my career as quickly as I could, as quickly as I could go through it. But, uh, you know, I had a great, a great playing career and, uh, and I've, I've been very blessed to be able to coach at some really good places over the last 17 years, I believe total. So uh, 17 or 18 years, I guess now, you know, I've been coaching. So uh, uh, been just been very blessed uh, to be able to coach in the state of South Carolina, where I'm from. And I have so many great relationships here and, been a part of some really good programs and uh, have learned a lot along the way and continue to learn. So I've been very blessed. I love that. And, you know, I I really wanted you to dive into, you know, being at Clemson now, what, what sets Clemson apart from other schools in the nation? Well, you know, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I think it all starts with the, with the academic reputation of our school. You know, Clemson um, was, was voted as one of the top 25 public institutions in the country. Um, it's voted as the top state-supported academic institution in the state of South Carolina. Uh, so, you know, first and foremost, it's a very, very good academic school. Um, Clemson has also, um, you know, been voted as uh, the safest campus in the country. Uh, so it's a very safe place to go to school for the students. It's been in the top five year in and year out uh, for students that pack the stadiums. So we get tremendous support from the student body at our athletic contests. Uh, Clemson is a is a college town. You know, there's there's really about two roads <laughs> that come into Clemson, and when you come into Clemson, there's Tiger Paws on the highway. You know, as you come in. So as soon as you come into Clemson, you start to get the sense of what Clemson's all about. It's a one heartbeat town. You know, everybody that lives here uh, works at Clemson. Uh, or is a student at Clemson or pulls for Clemson. I mean, the whole town is purple and orange to students. You go through campus and everybody wears orange and purple. And every Friday in the town of Clemson is solid orange Friday. So everybody wears their orange uh, throughout the community. And it's just a really, it's a safe place to live. It's a safe place to go to school. It's a high quality education. Um, and we have tremendous facilities. Um, Tremendous crowds. Uh, we've been in the top eight in attendance for over 25 consecutive years in baseball uh, with all the success that football is having, basketball and soccer and a lot of our sports have been successful. You know, we draw very well. Um, it's just a great place. And, um, you know, the state of South Carolina, there's no pro sports. So for the, for the people of South Carolina that follow Clemson Athletics, we really are you know, the pro sports and the entertainment for the people across our state when it comes to who they pull for and what they're interested in in athletics. So, um, 
Clemson's a really cool place. It's a really special place, and uh, it's a great place to live, coach, and raise a family. And that is so cool. Uh, I, I kind of want to dive into that culture there you touched on, um, being in the ACC with that kind of higher academic and athletic expectation. Uh, what kind of player do you guys target to fit the mold and culture that you've created there at Clemson? Well, that's a good question. I, I think we, we can tell a lot about a young man when we bring him on campus. You know, we're, we're looking for guys that when they come here, that this is the type of experience they're looking for, first and foremost. I think when we get a young man and his family on campus, we can kind of tell if he's going to come here or not. I mean, it's just it's amazing how quickly we can tell that a kid has a strong interest in Clemson because they're looking for um, you know a college town atmosphere. They're looking for a place where they can just focus on academics and athletics. Uh, because that's what you come to Clemson for as a student or as a student athlete. You're looking for a place where you can really just kind of focus on, um, you know, getting a good education and, and being a part of the athletic events and part of campus life. If, if campus life is something that is important to a young man uh, or, or a young lady, Clemson is a really, really good fit for them. Um, there's not a lot of distractions here. Uh, so you start to get a feel real quick when you bring a, a young man on campus that that's important to him. Uh, and if it is, you know, then Clemson's probably going to be a good fit. Uh, athletically for us, the things that I like, I, I like guys positionally that have a high level of skill. Now, I don't really recruit by position as much as I do by skill. I think we're looking for guys that have a high level of skills when it comes to uh, you know, the ability to play multiple positions. That's one thing that we value here. Uh, we value guys that can hit a fastball. Uh, you know, as simple as I can put it, you know, we tell kids anytime we have a camp uh, or when we're talking to our team, you know, when you walk into the ballpark, what's the first thing that stands out about a player on the field? Uh, it's his ability to turn around a good fastball. You know, if he can hit a good fastball, then he has bad speed and He's got good hands and eyes and, and good reaction skills, and those are the types of players we like. You know, we like guys that, that can run, uh, that are physical, that can play multiple positions. Uh, but the last piece that really stands out and I think separates um, a player uh, from other guys is, is, is how tough they are. You know, so we try to do our homework and talk to the coaches and watch them play. How hard do they play? Do they play with energy? Do they play with passion? Uh, you know, what type of intensity level do they play with? We like guys that 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 play the game that way. Uh, so, you know, we're looking for blue-collar, you know, tough kids that, that play hard, uh, that have bat speed, play multiple position, that have a high level of skills. And, um, you know, if you look at our team, we, we've got a number of guys that kind of fit that mold. So, uh, you know, that's kind of where we start, and we try to keep it pretty simple. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the types of guys we like to recruit. Yeah, no, that's a great breakdown. And, um, well, you know, when you do actually get them on your team and you get them there, you know, how does your program approach uh, player development from that point? That's a good question because I think, I think when it comes to how you approach player development, I think that's an ongoing process and an ongoing evolution. Every year uh, you're going to look for – newer and better ways to do what you do. And that, that's a big deal for me as a head coach. And, and, and as just a coach in general, is that I'm always looking for how 
we can improve what we teach our players. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is we always search for the truth, not tradition. And I think that's very critical when it comes to coaching is that we're always searching for the truth and not tradition. It's not about, well, we've always done it this way. We've always ran practices this way, and we're just going to continue to do it that way. We look at what we do, and we try to find, okay, this is these are some of our staples. Now how can we improve the way we teach the game in these areas? Uh, so that's, I think, the first thing. Uh, that, that you'll notice if you come to watch us practice kind of year in and year out is that we're constantly evolving and changing uh, and tweaking the way we do things. Um, we're very, very environment-driven when it comes to player development. Uh, we try to create an environment and practice every day that's going to challenge our players. We, we're not a very, uh, a very routine-driven team anymore. We used to be. I used to coach that way years ago where, you know, every day you start out and you're going to stretch and throw and then do individual defense for 20 minutes and then a team defense for 20 or 30 minutes and then a batting practice and call it a day. And you do that over and over and over and very repetitious, very routine, uh, but also can become fairly boring. Um, we don't really develop our players that way anymore. We try to randomize our practices a lot. So they're going to do a variety of different hitting challenges, a variety of different defensive challenges, um, base running challenges, always trying to randomize our practices and challenge our players uh, to get better. Um, we always practice at game speed. So you wouldn't come to us, you wouldn't come and watch us practice and see a group of guys that are going through slow, repetitious drills um, you know, if we're hitting, we're hitting off of high velocity or we're hitting a, a breaking ball or we're, we're doing angle BP or we're throwing in the implementation of, of weighted bats. Um, we're doing a number of things to try to challenge our players to adapt and grow and fail and learn in their environment. And we always do it at game speed. Uh, so. That's that's the big key, I think, for us when it comes to player development is put them in an environment that's going to be very game-like, very challenging, that's going to allow them to adapt and grow and get better. Yeah, that's interesting. I kind of want you to dive a little deeper into that randomization of practice planning. Uh, can you kind of sure. walk us through what a typical day of practice looks like uh, for the Tigers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the one of the things when it comes to, you know, the randomized practices uh, and randomized training, and a, and a lot of this is just from, from years of just listening and learning and watching other people do what they do. Um, you know, it, it, it's about looking at, okay, how do, we, how do we teach defense? Okay, I'll use this as an example, and then I'll get into offense. So, like, when if you watch a, a typical team, a typical baseball program, even my baseball program, uh, for years, you know, work on defense. I think the idea in baseball has always been, okay, when we go to our infield work, we're going to do a lot of, a lot of four man or, or two man fungo work where we're going to hit, you know, every guy in the infield, uh, you know, somewhere between 50 and 100 ground balls. And the prescription is going to be X amount of throws to second, X amount of throws to first, X amount of slow rollers, X amount of double plays. 
And then we would have the same prescription for the outfielders where we're going to hit them fly balls and ground balls. And we're going to do this with the catchers. We're going to do receiving for X amount of minutes, maybe blocking for X amount of minutes. Uh, we're always going to throw in the outfield from the foul line out. And we're going to kind of do the same prescription every day when it comes to catching and throwing. And then batting practice will be a coach throwing BP from, you know, 35 feet. And it may be a situational rounds, round one, round two, maybe an opposite field round. And rounds three and four, maybe five would be more gap-to-gap oriented rounds. And, you know, that's kind of the way we used to practice. Um, and, and, and what you find is, again, none of that – at some point is going to challenge the athlete. You know, the player's only going to get better for, uh, you know, a certain amount of time practicing in that type of routine. It's sort of like going to the weight room and doing the same workout three days a week all year long. You know, at some point your body's just not going to adapt and grow anymore and change. Same concept in baseball. Uh, so what we started to look at was how can we make our practices more challenging and randomized so that our players continue to grow. So now, you know, when we do defense, for instance, if you came to watch us, even in a pregame infield outfield, like we don't even do pregame in and out anymore. Um, you know, we'll have a coach uh, sit in front of home plate and we'll have a hitter. I stand in the right-handed hitter's box and we'll have a, a left-handed hitter stand in the other box, two coaches, and we will do uh, side toss and hit ground balls to our infielders for ground ball work. Um, so that they get more top spin oriented ground balls. So we do all of our ground ball work now with from a from a side toss uh, in a side toss drill. And our our infielders don't necessarily know who's going to get the ball. All they know is is you know that that I'm going to hit the the left side of the infield, being in the right handed hitter's box, and the left handed hitter is going to hit to the right side of the infield. So you know they're again it's more game like. It's a little more randomized. As far as our throwing program, we now throw from our positions. You know, our infielders will throw for three to four minutes in the outfield, and then they come into the dirt, and they have X amount of throws to bases from their position. And we do the same thing with our catchers. Our catchers will throw for X amount of minutes, and then we'll do a certain amount of throws to bases uh, from a bunt roll or from the mound uh, like a pop time or a block and recover. So now our throwing is in their environment. Same thing with the outfielders. Uh, we have them go to the outfield and make X amount of throws uh, from the outfield once they play catch up to 90 feet. Um, for our infielders, when we long toss now, you know, they'll take a bucket of balls out into shallow outfield in different parts of the outfield and treat it like, um, you know, they're doing a double cut, you know, like a cut and relay, a relay throw to the plate. So their long toss now are relay throws from the outfield to the plate. Uh, so we try to throw in our game environment. We try to create a ground ball that's going to be more like they get in the game. Uh, comes to hitting. You know, now, you know, when we go into hitting, you know, we're going we're gonna to crank up the hack attack. We have extension legs on the hack attack now uh, on our pitching machine to where it's, it's shooting a ball, you know, on a downhill angle um, um, above six foot. Uh, to to try to uh, replicate, you know, your your average right-hander uh, that you're going to see on a Friday night, who's typically going to be six foot three, six foot four, and throwing 90 plus. So, a lot of our batting practice now is off a hack attack from 55 feet, 
at a downhill angle and, and we're going to crank it up, you know, in that 90 to 93 range. We're going to put, uh, there's days where we put two hack attacks on a mount. One's a fastball, one's a breaking ball. Uh, we actually play a lot of simulated games off a of double hack attack where we put a full team on defense, full team on offense, and we play games. Uh, and we'll do it off a of fastball breaking ball. Uh, and we'll have the catchers call pitches and, and we just play baseball. Basically the machines, are the pitchers and our guys, and we play games. Uh, and again, I think we just we try to create the environment that our guys are going to play in. Um, and that sounds simple, but no, but a, but a lot of people in baseball still aren't doing that. They're still doing, you know, 50 mile an hour BP at 35 feet, where guys feel really good about their swings. But that's not what happens in the game. You know, you're going to get you know, you're going to get a mix of fastball and breaking ball. You're going to see high velocity. Um, you know, your ground balls aren't, aren't coming off of fungo with backspin. They're going to be coming with topspin. Uh, so I think anything that we can do to challenge the player in their game environment is going to make them better. And I think the environment uh, helps develop the player more so than the coach constantly talking and constantly running them through controlled, easy drills that make the player feel better about themselves. And I think that's been the biggest change over the last, you know, probably really, you know, over the last five years, five to eight years, you know, for me personally. And it's just talking to other people, listening to other people, what they're doing, and um, and just trying to continue, continually uh, look for the truth and and not seek tradition when it comes to how we how we teach our players and coach our players and develop our players. Man, that, yeah, that's awesome. I love um, even too when you dove into the top spin ground balls. Like that was a game changer uh, for me when I was coming up through my academy. It's having the pro guys come in and we started going off machines with top spin ground balls and things like that because it completely obviously changes the environment from a fungo. Um, now, when you guys go through too as well, when it comes in the player development, how does uh, Clemson utilize technology to you know assist in that area? Yeah, we use technology a lot. Again, any, anything that we value, we try to measure it. You know, we try we we try to measure it through technology. So uh, we have TrackMan here. Um, we have you know we hired a director of player development, uh, Russ Steinhorn, uh, out of the Astros organization to help us when we incorporated TrackMan into our games and into our inner squads and 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 looking at that data and that information. We use TrackMan for a variety. Uh, of things to look at and measure with our players and with our opponents. Um, we use Rapsodo, hitting Rapsodo and pitching Rapsodo. Coach C has been using Rapsodo for a couple years. We just started using Rapsodo with our hitters this fall to give us in that cage application when we have the guys in the cage, we can see, uh, you know, how hard they're hitting the ball, at what launch angle, at what exit velocity. Um, you know, the guys can start to see, okay, when I hit, when I hit the ball to this part of the cage, now I can look at that, that information, uh, you know, on the, on the iPad. And it, it tells me a lot about what I'm doing in the box. Uh, so we use Rapsodo pitching and hitting. Uh, we use bat sensors. We use diamond kinetic sensors. You know, there's a couple things that we value as a program with the bat sensor. Uh, one is attack angle. Um, very, very big on attack angle. We don't spend a ton of time talking about launch angle, you know, post-contact data, uh, as much as we do attack angle. Uh, you know, the bat sensor is all pre-contact. Uh, so we look at attack angle for players. 
uh, try to get them in a range that we feel like puts them in a position to make more consistent hard contact, especially when you're hitting off, you know, a machine every day that's throwing 90 plus miles an hour at a downhill angle. If you don't create a good attack angle, you're going to have a hard time squaring the ball up. Uh, trigger to impact is important, especially when you're training off of velocity a lot. You know, how quickly can you get the head of the bat to the ball uh, and transfer your power, uh, your rotational power into the swing? Uh, we also want guys that keep the, the barrel of the bat, um, get the barrel of the bat on plane early and stay through the strike zone as long as they can. So uh, distance in the zone is something that we value. So, you know, again, we're trying to create through the environment, you know, things that challenge the player, but also give them some things that they can look at. You know, kids today, they, they love, they love data. They do. I mean, we do, when we do exit velo BP, you know, they want to know, you know, what, what was my peak exit velocity today? What was my average exit velocity today? And, you know, we put all that stuff on paper and send it out to them. You know, we share that information with them. And, um, I think the more, uh, the more data uh, that you use, more technology you use, the better. You know, we use the pitch recognition apps online. Um, and, um, you know, we just do, you know, again, a, a number of things that, that we feel like benefit the players. Um, and they like it. So, uh, you know, between pitch recognition apps, uh, between uh, the diamond kinetic sensor information, uh, pitching and hitting Rapsodo, TrackMan, uh, we're doing an, an awful lot, not to mention some of the technology that our strength staff uses uh, in the weight room. Uh, so, uh, you know, overall, we're a, we're, a, we're a very, I would say, uh, data-driven program. But, you know, first and foremost, we're, we're trying to create the environment uh, within the players uh, in practice every day that, that's going to that's gonna make them better. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Uh, day in, day out, week in, week out when it comes to using technology. Yeah, it's so good. I think the way the game's going with technology, those coaches that don't really buy in, I think they're going to be left behind or left without a job. Oh, I agree. I mean, I agree. And, and, and you know, it, and it wasn't something that when I started looking at it, I, I was I was uncomfortable using it, um, you know, just because I didn't, I didn't come up using a lot of technology uh, when it, when it came to, measuring performance, you know, measuring a hitter. Uh, you know, we didn't have, we had a stopwatch and a radar gun. And, and about, that was about it. But um, one thing I've always felt like, again, is seek the truth. You know, don't seek tradition, seek the truth. And what do the numbers say? Um, you know, we value statistics so much in baseball. It just doesn't make sense to not value numbers when it comes to data. Uh, so, uh, and that's kind of how I've always approached it. I've always been very, very open-minded and always felt like, you know, we always have to constantly search for the truth. I want to teach my players the truth. I don't want to, I don't want to give them false information uh, that data cannot back up, that numbers cannot back up because our game is driven by numbers, you know, whether we like it or not. Yeah. I love that. So you kind of touched on this earlier, but I want you to open it up a little bit more. Uh, what was that experience like returning to be the head skip at your alma mater? And what effect did that have on the course of your career? Well, I, I would tell any young coach this, and I've, I've been asked this question quite a number of times over the years. I've had, you know, a young, young coaches who are just becoming head coaches for the first time call and ask, like, 
hey, what did what did the first 90 days look like for you? What 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 would you focus on for the first month, the first two months, those kind of things? And I kind of laugh. I always I always laugh because I don't know if I've ever worked harder in my life than I did uh, for the first three months when I became a head coach for the first time. And the reason I say that is because nobody gives you a manual as to, hey, when you become a head coach, here's what you got to do. Nobody gives you that manual. You know, it's it's basically, okay, you're the head coach, figure it out. You got to figure it out. So I've always encouraged coaches, hey, you know what? You just got to dive in head first and just work as hard as you possibly can until you figure out what works for you. One thing that I do know, and, and this is one thing that I learned uh, at a young age, is the best in the business are the most self-motivated. Uh, you have to be self-motivated if you want to be a, a head coach of a Division One program or, or, or any program for that matter. If you want to be successful as a head coach, you got to be super self-motivated because nobody's going to give you that blueprint. Nobody's going to give you that manual of how to do this. So I just remember at, at that age, just jumping in and saying, you know what, I'm going to be the hitting coach. I'm going to be the base running coach, the outfield coach, infield coach, recruiting coordinator, fundraiser, you know, manage the budget. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to put my hands in everything. And and I did, and I started to learn, okay, I can't do this by myself. I've got to, I've got to <laughs> delegate some of these responsibilities. And, and I was blessed to have a really good coaching staff early on. And you just learn because you got so much energy at a young age and you feel like, you know, I can do all of this. I can I can have my hands in everything. And you start to realize, you know what, I can't do anything without a great staff. You know, I, I just – you cannot – nobody gets there alone. And I think that was – that's what it looked like for me. I look back and, I mean, I, I can remember five years after becoming a head coach thinking, geez, you know, that first year I was really – you know, I, I, I was really running around in circles – trying to figure out how to do everything and and, and you really can't do that uh, so it was a lot of fun I can tell you that I mean I think being a head coach at a young age and having and, and learning how to fail and how to learn from failure um, and trying and, and figuring out my own style without a lot of help it helped me uh, it, it helped me a lot and just 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 being self-motivated and asking questions using you know, using my mentors like Tim Wallace at Spartanburg Methodist and Coach Tanner at, at South Carolina, just utilizing my resources, utilizing my coaching staff. And, you know, eventually you start to figure out, okay, you know, you're in charge of this and it's yours. Now run with it. And just giving, you know, the your your staff the freedom to do their job. And, and um, it just it makes life easier on you. You know, we tell our players when they first get here, and I and I, I think I learned this just from my own experiences. You know, you always hear the term you want to work smart more than you want to work hard, right? Instead of working hard, you got to learn how to work smart. Well, the only way you learn how to work smart is by working hard. You know, you got to fail a lot through working hard and and trying to be involved in a lot of different areas, so you start to learn. Okay. These are things that I'm not good at. I need to delegate these responsibilities to somebody else and learn how to work a little smarter. 
I think that's the biggest things that you learn, you know, just from, you know, from being a, a head coach at a young age and, and maybe not being quite ready for it. Who knows? Um, all I know is, is you got to work hard before you can work smart. And, and I learned that as, at a young age and, and being um, at, at getting the job at, at that age. And, and it was a great experience for me. That's really good. And, you know, also too, could you dive into that of over your coaching career, your style, I'm sure has changed. What has changed over that time? Ooh, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, again, I think, I think early on, I, I wanted to be the most organized when it comes to running practice and how we do things, very routine driven. And I started to understand the value of randomization in practice and challenging the players in practice more. Um, I would say that one thing that I've learned over the years is I try to talk less and do more in practice. Um, I used to try to coach my way through everything early on. You know, anytime a player would screw up, I'd want to stop practice and go over that and talk about it. You know, next thing you know, we're in the middle of an inner squad. I've been talking for 10 minutes to the whole team, and I got a pitcher trying to get ready to go out for the next inning. You know, you just you start you start to realize <laughs> that I think that I think the best coaches say less and do more. Um, you know, they I, I think you have to sit back and watch and learn and evaluate and and when you speak it, it needs to be important i think that's the, been the biggest change for me over the years i can still get long-winded like any coach can if you're passionate about what you do you want to talk about it uh so i think that that i learned you know early on uh from some of the mistakes i made early on is you know try to talk less um and and put the players in a position to learn. You know, you don't really learn anything until you experience it. You know, I I can't read a book about baseball and go out and play baseball. So, you know, we all read and we talk a lot, but until we actually experience it as student athletes and as coaches, we don't we don't really learn from it. So, I've I've really learned uh, over the years to, you know, put the players in the position uh, in that environment. Uh, to practice and learn and fail through their experiences as opposed to just constantly talking to them about how to fill the ground ball, how to swing the bat, how to do this, how to do that. Just put them out there and let them learn, you know, as as they go through that experience. Uh, that's probably been the biggest, I guess, change uh, for me over the years um, is talking less and, and doing more. That 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 would probably be the the biggest thing that I've learned over the years. That's a good one. Monty, we kind of have a wide range of coaches that listen to the podcast and many of them are young and kind of eager to get into the coaching gig. Mm -hmm. For this question, I want you to think back and reflect on your first year or two of coaching. What's the biggest piece of advice you'd give to that young guy just getting into it? Be yourself. I know that's so cliche and um, everybody kind of says that, but I think you have to be yourself. I think if you're very calm and collected, you got to be calm and collected. I think if you're fiery and intense, you got to be fiery and intense. Um, I think you have to be yourself. I think players will see through you faster if you try to be somebody you're not than anything else. And you got to show the players that you care, that you care more about their development uh, than you do wins and losses. You know, we all we all know how you stay in this business. I mean, you got to win ball games. We we all know that. You know, at, at Clemson, I've got to win. Um, but w how do you win? You know, you win by developing your players. 
I mean, that's the bottom line. So relationships certainly matter. Um, if I was going to tell, you know, a younger version of myself to do one thing, I'd get to know the kids um, off the field a little bit better, uh, bring kids into the office and just talk to them about what's going on in their life. How's academics going? How's your family doing? Are you, are you able to, uh, to do, do some things away from the field that you enjoy? Um, you know, I think sometimes as a young coach, you just get so driven in, in, in winning, winning, winning and, and, and practice, practice, practice and recruiting, recruiting, recruiting that, you know, sometimes you, you got to step back and understand that this is a relationship driven thing that we're in here as coaches. So just establishing relationships early on, I think is very important uh, to a young coach and just being themselves. That, that's, that's the biggest key and, and use your resources, you know, read, uh, use social media, network, talk to other coaches. Don't be afraid to reach out to experienced coaches and ask them how they do things. We love talking baseball as coaches. So, you know, that, that would be just a few things that I would share uh, with young coaches getting into the business. Hmm. Monty, that's great advice. And uh, I think you kind of walked into my spider web right there. You know, what has been your best source to develop yourself, you know, over the years as a coach? Who? I mean, there's a lot of them. I think, again, relationships. It all starts with relationships and talking to other coaches. And But I, I think your best source of information is, first and foremost, is just checking your ego. Um, I think that's that's where it all starts. You know, you got to put your ego and what you think you know and to the side uh, and be willing to listen to anybody. Um, you know, but I use I use Twitter. I use uh, social media. I love to listen to podcasts. You know, one thing that I, I try my best to do, you know, I take my daughter to school every day. And when I drop her off uh, from from her high school to the office, I listen to a podcast. You know, I'll pick a podcast and, and listen. And oftentimes they're baseball related podcasts or leadership related podcasts. And I love to listen uh, to podcasts while I'm driving or if I'm you know, doing some, going for a walk, you know, with the dogs. When I get home, I put on a podcast and try to learn from other coaches. I, I text and call and, and, and just, again, just utilize my resources. Ask the best in the business what they do. What you'll find is more times than not, the best in the business keep it super, super simple. And it's always refreshing to talk to an experienced coach uh, and ask them how they teach this or how they handle this. And they give you that simple advice and you just think to yourself, well, God, I could have thought of that. But, you know, a lot of times the most simple ways of doing things are the best. And uh, that's that's really what I do. I like to listen and learn and read and talk. And, again, it, it all starts first and foremost. you got to check your ego as a coach. you got to realize that, you know, you, you think you know something until you start listening to other folks that are out there and you start to realize, man, there's a lot of really good information out here and I can continue to grow and develop as a coach. Yeah, man, that's so true. Well, Coach, we really appreciate you hopping on and kind of opening up this information for our listeners. Um, if any of them want to reach out to you or about anything we covered today, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, follow me on Twitter. And, uh, you know, direct message is fine. I, I try my best to respond to coaches through direct messages on Twitter. If they send me, send me a message, 
Um, you know, something else um, is is email. You know, my email address is Montel, M-O-N-T-E-L, at Clemson.edu. So any coach out there who has a question about, you know, how we do anything in our program, uh, feel free to, to reach out to me. Um, I love to share information, love to talk baseball with, with coaches and try to help any way I can. So an email or a direct message through Twitter uh, works great. So uh, that's, that's probably the best two methods for me. That's awesome. Well, you know, Monty, we appreciate your time and you continuing to give back to the game and everything you've done. Um, and, you know, we just thank you for jumping on with us again today. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. Wow, that's great. You know, Monty could jump on with us and he really gave us some insight to what they're doing over there at Clemson. This call takeaway is brought to you by Quality at Bats. Don't forget to visit qualityatbats.com to further your mental approach to the game. Yeah, man, Monty absolutely killed it. What was your biggest call takeaway, Joey? I think my biggest call takeaway is one thing that, you know, with that even drew us to Monty in the first place is when he talks about in search of inspiration, I mean, Bo, you know, I mean, Monty followed us early, you know, like soon as, you know, we were early, he followed on, got full on board. I mean, he was, um, you know, following us on every social media site, also on our website. I mean, he was just everywhere, um, you know, just in search of information. So it's just, it's been cool, you know, to see a guy like that at that level, just so in search of knowledge um, that he'll take it from all these sources and, you know, take what he can from it and et cetera. So I think that was my biggest call takeaway. How about you, Bo? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, for me, he touched on it a couple of times. It's uh, truth versus tradition. You know, he touched on kind of the evolution mm-hmm. of coaching and how we have to stay up to date with the times and up to date with the implementation of technology. So it was refreshing to hear another high level mind talk about that. And then also another uh, high level coach talking about lifelong learning. So it's good advice for any yeah. coach, you know, any spectrum of the game. I think that's important to do. And um, that was kind of my biggest takeaways. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And no, that was really good. And, you know, guys, as always, great episode to share. You know, Monty really did, you know, he got in some depth in what they do and what they do in their practices and some great techniques that people that are applicable right now. So great to share there. Um, obviously, one of the top universities in the country, um, one of the top coaches in the country to pull from. So great episode to share. Um, you know, send it to your friends. Give us a shout out on Twitter. You'll get an instant retweet. Um, and, you know, uh, as always, you know, guys, we're here for you. Anything we can do for you, any Anything you need from us, any questions that you have, anybody you want to have on the podcast, there's been a couple guys reaching out, you know, uh, referencing that, you know, future guys have on the podcast. We love seeing that stuff and uh, continue to reach out that way. So as always, guys, until next time, Farm System out.